we're going to be speaking on uh, Genesis 3, 14 and 15, which is the Proto-Evangelium. I'll explain that in a while, and uh, uh, the title of it is The Promised One. Well, as I said, the uh, two psalms that I'm reading are Messianic psalms. They're saying that the king is coming, and uh, here's what it says in the 22nd Psalm. To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, oh, uh, I'm sorry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, am not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. My, O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. He has done this. When we look around the state of the world that we're in, the state of our lives and the troubles which seem to hem us in on all of our sides, it's often hard to imagine that God has got everything figured out. Imagine what Habakkuk thought when he saw the armies of Babylon coming against his people, the chosen people of Israel. Here's what he said. O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear, even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. The horrifying, the absolutely horrifying things which have happened in history can really cause us, each one of us, to question God's goodness and his ability to keep things under control. But I want you all to know that that is the furthest thing from the truth. Why is the question, why should, we inter why should God interfere with us in our free will when we don't want him around at all? When everything is going well, as humans, we only seek him when they start going bad. But when it is going well, we don't seek out God. We don't look after him. We just live our lives callously. And you can see this in every culture around us as things are going well. But the first thing that happens when things go poorly is people cry out, Oh God, why me? Or why us? Or why did this happen? I email and I post online, and many of you know this, a daily devotional. I do it every morning. 
I started with Romans 1 1. This is about eight years ago, and one verse at a time Romans 1 1, Romans 1 2, Romans 1 3. Going all the way through that and getting into next the book of uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians. And I've been doing this one verse a day with an analysis and with a prayer. And I have done that now. Today I sent out Revelation 4 3. And I have seen a pattern, I've noticed a trend when I do this. When I post a verse which is happy and when it's uplifting, people will sign on for it. And I see the numbers go up on Facebook. It's got a little counter. It tells me how many people get it on this site. It tells me how many people get it on this site. And here's that same guy from last week. I'm gonna let him go by, hang on. I'm sorry about that, I can't control him. Last week it was really bad. We had boats and everything going by. But the point I'm making is that as I post happy and cheerful and uplifting uh, daily devotionals, the numbers go up. But as soon as I post one that speaks about judgment, I see the numbers start going back down. And people email me and they accuse me of not being like Jesus, when in fact Jesus is the one that wrote the book. All I'm doing is I'm taking the verse and I'm just analyzing it. The book of Jude, I lost a ton of people in the book of Jude because Jude is, everybody here knows, it is about judgment on an unrepentant and wicked world. And that's the way it is. The same thing happens in my Bible classes. It happens in my sermons. If I preach a sermon on judgment, or if I say something about judgment in a Bible class, I notice people don't come the next week. And this is the way that it is. This is, people just get offended about it. But this is a problem with misunderstanding the nature of evil and the consequences of sin. Be it in an individual, be it in your family, be it in a church body, or be it in a nation. This is the way that these things are, and God has given us his word to help us understand that. So if judgment bothers you, and I don't think it bothers most people here, I've seen you all come and go, so, but if it does, you have to take this up with God. And he is going to tell you that everything will work out in the end. That's just the way it is. But until then, the devil needs to be dealt with and sin needs to be dealt with. Judgment begins at the house of God. That is a pattern that is seen in the Old Testament. It's a pattern that's seen in the New Testament. Judgment begins at the house of God and it begins with God's people. And if you struggle with this, if in fact Israel is God's people and they were judged, like Habakkuk, he struggled with it, he took it up with the Lord. If America is the defender of Israel and they get judged because they are not properly handling their relationship with Israel, we need to take it up with God. We need to not argue with God about it. We need to just say, Lord, open your word to me and explain it. The two verses that we are going to look at today begin the long process of dealing with the devil and of conquering sin. The first verse deals with the curse of Satan and the restrictions placed on him. And the second one details in veiled terms, Satan's final defeat. Genesis 3.15, which we're gonna look at, 14 and 15. Genesis 3.15 is known as the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel because it is the first explicit reference in the Bible to the coming Christ. All things will be made right. I assure you, all this trouble we're having will be made right when the devil is destroyed by the promised coming one, who we now know as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's our text verse for today. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. So may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Heavenly Father, today is a uh, wonderful beginning to your plan of redeeming man from the curse that was levied on man and all of the sentencing that went on in the past few sermons. And we look forward with anticipation to what Jesus is going to do and how he is actually prefigured in these verses. What a great God you are to give us this hope, this sure hope, which was realized in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may his name be praised. Amen. Our first thought today is defining the curse, which is Genesis 3.14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now with this pronouncement, Genesis 3.14, and the verse which will follow, Genesis 3.15, defeat of the devil is assured. If you believe in the sovereignty and all-powerful God, sovereignty of God and his all-powerful nature, then you know that this is true. 
The Lord God in this verse did not even bother to interrogate the serpent like he did with the man and the woman. He knew what he heard is true, and so he simply pronounced judgment on the devil. The judgment as he speaks during that verse gets progressively worse as the Lord is speaking to him. And as he does, there is both a physical and there is a spiritual element to what he says. The pronouncement upon the serpent is the physical vehicle which was used by the devil. So that is the pronouncement on the serpent. But there is also this spiritual pronouncement which is made upon the devil himself. The physical pronouncement of the serpent starts with, you are cursed more than all the cattle. In other words, even dumb oxen are going to be ahead of you. The oxen, the cattle are unreasoning animals. They're brute beasts, but you are less than they are. The ox is so stupid, as we know from elsewhere in the Bible, that they have to be prodded along with these poking tools in order to get them where they're going. But serpents cannot even reason that far. The most that you can do with the serpent is to charm him out of a basket. And that's just the way serpent, the serpent or the devil charmed man out of the Garden of Eden. And just as the serpent can be put back into the basket, just as the charmer is able to put that serpent back into the basket, the Lord is able to put the serpent, the devil, into the lake of fire and take care of the sin and the problems of the world. And he's also able to put man, fallen man, back into the paradise that he has promised to us. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 5, we read a very nifty parallel to this. It says, so I asked, what is it? And he said, it is a basket that is going forth. He also said, there, this is their resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting in the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket, and he threw the lead cover over its mouth. Just as wickedness was shut up in this epaw basket, so will Satan be shut up in the lake of fire, which was prepared especially for him and for his demons. We don't need to worry about it. The victory is already assured, and we are waiting for the consummation of that even today. Next in our verse, the Lord says that the serpent is cursed more than every beast of the field. This doesn't mean that the other animals are cursed. What he's saying is that the curse on the serpent would make them lower than the other animals. Not only are you lower than the cattle, but every animal is above you. You are the lowest of the low and the vilest of the vile. You are exceeded by platypuses, wombats, badgers, and squirrels. Everything will be ahead of you. Even swine, which eat the refuse of the world by walking around fat little garbage cans, are ahead of you. The curse continues with, on your belly you shall go. This particular phrase, I would suggest you, has to be taken literally unless we rob the Bible of its significance. In other words, the serpent was physically altered from what he originally looked like to what he looks like now. And now we know that he is a slithering, slippery, slimy serpent. Okay, but at one time he wasn't what he is now. Just as you slithered into the lives of my humans and brought them to the state where they will return to the dust, so you and your existence will be in the very dust that you condemned them to. From the dust they came and to the dust they shall return. But you, you serpent, will be united with the dust from the beginning to the end. You have your kingdom, you have your rule and your authority, but it is from the lowest position. Other rulers sit above their kingdom, but your reign will be from your belly as you lie in the dust. So let's continue with the Lord's curse of this vile serpent. And you shall eat the dust all the days of your life. The defeat is decided right here. Just as the slain warrior's future is to lay in the dust that he walked on, so is the serpent. You will be just like him. You will eat the dust and it will sustain you. In this case, I would suggest, and I don't know this for certain, but I would assume that even the earthworm is included in the overall picture of this. The earthworm really does eat the dust and the earth and everything that returns to it. Just as man dissolves back into the earth, the earthworm finds its food. The serpent destroyed man in the garden and he would continue to destroy fallen man outside of the garden as he went back into the, the, the dust of the earth. But what may appear as a victory in this sense is really a condemnation of the devil's deeds. The only food that he will have is that of death and corruption of his fallen creatures and not of the wellspring of life. 
This curse right here is by far worse than the death that is mandated for other animals because it is eternal in nature, as we're going to see when we get to Revelation maybe 50 years from now. But the theme of the Bible's curse on the serpent carries all the way through the Bible and through every dispensation. In the millennial reign of Christ, which is after the tribulation period, in other words, here we are, we're in what's called the dispensation of grace, and at a time, maybe soon, it may be a long time from now, I personally think it's gonna be rather soon, we are going to have what's called the tribulation period, where the world is going to come under judgment. And after that, when Christ returns, there will be a thousand year reign of Christ, where everything is going to be restored to idyllic conditions. And during that, beautiful time, this thousand-year reign of Christ, Isaiah makes this prophecy. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. When the creation is restored to idyllic conditions for the other animals, the lamb feeding with the wolf and the lion eating straw, the serpent is still going to be licking the dust. His curse doesn't end. And as I said, though, there is a spiritual pronouncement as well. The curse is laid on the devil or Satan who filled the serpent. Satan was an angelic being. And we read in the first chapter of the book of Job that he could freely enter the Lord's presence anytime he wanted. But in Luke chapter 17, we read this account from Jesus' own mouth. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing by any means will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Satan has fallen. Jesus saw it himself when he destroyed the power of Satan. The curse upon the devil means then that he would never again enjoy the riches of heaven or his angelic position. The food of angels is replaced with the souls of fallen men and the degradation of them through impurity and through wickedness. Instead of a marvelous witness to the majesty of God's creation, he would be reduced to what Paul writes as the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Elsewhere in the Bible, we have unreasoning animals that will kill or injure a person and their sentence is death. But unlike them, what the serpent did was of a moral nature. And because it was of a moral nature, he was not given physical death. Instead, the result was a curse on him. And this pattern isn't unique to the devil either. This is an important point here. When we get to chapter nine of Genesis, we will come across the morally offensive sin of the son of Noah. His name is Ham. And there, the result is also a curse. It says, so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him. Then he said, cursed be Satan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. A moral transgression, and this is something all of us need to remember, requires a substantial moral curse. And so we all need to pay heed to that. Moral transgressions are different than other type of transgressions. On your belly you shall go, you slithering snake. Your rule will be from the dust of the earth. From corruption and death, souls you will take. And to the sons of hell you shall give birth. The world of wickedness is your domain, and every vile thing you shall rule. Your army will be the sons of Cain, the disobedient, the vile, and yes, also the fool. But you and your kingdom will have its end, and all that evil you brought into my creation to the lake of fire, it I will send, and there you will receive eternal destruction. So now that we've looked at this particular verse and its repercussions for both the serpent and for the devil, let's see how they actually become believe it or not, a veiled picture of Christ and his atoning work on our behalf. Satan went from being a beautiful angel of God's creation to a serpent, the cunning and the loathsome reptile that we all know about. On the other hand, we have an interesting parallel to him in the book of Numbers. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They're complaining about getting free bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Remember what I said earlier, when things are going good, we just complain and we grumble, we find fault in God, but when things go bad, we start to 
Call on the name of the Lord. Perfect pattern right here. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And Moses, in John chapter 3, we read what this bronze serpent symbolized. Jesus himself explains it to us. And Moses lifted up the serpent. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When they looked at that bronze serpent in the wilderness, it wasn't the bronze serpent that saved them from the poison of the of the serpent that had bitten them. It was faith that God's promise stood that if you look at this, you will be saved. And Jesus is saying the same thing. I am going to be lifted up. And when I am, when I am lifted up, if you believe in me, you will be saved. And we know the next verse, Genesis 3, 16, is the text verse of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. One other time that this particular bronze serpent is mentioned is in the book of two kings. And there we see how it degraded into an idol and also what its name was. Here's what it says in two kings. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. This is hundreds of years later. And this king actually broke this piece of antiquity from Israel's history because they were idolizing it. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. One important lesson here is that even God's mode of saving can become an idol. When we look to the cross, we need to remember this. It is only a symbol of the greater work of the person of Jesus Christ and not a talisman that replaces him. So please keep that in mind. We need to be on guard even in the things that we boast about most. As Paul says in the book of Galatians, chapter 6 and the 14th verse, he says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Yes, we do boast in the cross, but only because of what it signifies in the great deliverance of humanity at the expense of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be careful never to make the error and use the cross as a good luck charm and not understand the significance is totally in the work of Jesus Christ. The bronze snake that we're talking about is called Nehushtan in the Hebrew word in the Hebrew language. And this word sounds very similar to three other Hebrew words. The word snake, the word bronze, and the word unclean thing. All three of these point to the work of Jesus Christ. The first one is the snake. Just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, so was Christ lifted up on the cross. The second word that sounds like Nehushtan is the word bronze. Bronze speaks of judgment. It's, I've explained before, you've got the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. You walk through the, the door or the gate into the tabernacle, and the first thing you see there is the altar of sacrifice, and that is where sin receives its judgment. I bring in this little lamb. I say, this lamb is innocent. It's done nothing wrong, and I'm taking my sins, and I'm transferring it to this lamb. And then the priest comes, and he cuts this poor thing's throat, and they pour out its blood, and they burn the, the uh, lamb on the uh, uh, altar. This speaks of judgment, and this is just like Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as our final judgment from sin. He was sinless, and we were sinful, we transfer our sin to him. And one more aspect of the word bronze comes from the book of Revelation, where Jesus is said to have feet like burnished bronze, which symbolizes his right to exercise judgment on the people of the world. And there's one more thing that sounds like Nehushtan, and that is the Hebrew word for unclean thing. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ became our unclean thing so that we could be cleansed and we could be purified in the presence of an infinitely holy creator. He was crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem, it says in the book of Hebrews. And why did they do that? Because after they sacrificed these sin-bearer animals, they took their bodies and they dumped them outside in an unclean place. 
signifying the uncleanness of the sins. And Jesus Christ was crucified outside of the walls of Jerusalem, signifying that he had become an unclean thing on our behalf. As you can see, everything eventually points to Jesus Christ and what he did for us. Even an obscure passage about a bronze snake from the Old Testament, and even Genesis 3, 14 and 15, and the curse upon the serpent. Our second thought today is enmity with the woman. The first two lines of Genesis 3.15 say this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This first half of Genesis 3.15 is directed solely at the relationship between the woman and the devil. The question is, who is the woman that he is speaking about? Is he speaking about Eve? Is he speaking about all women? Or is he speaking about a spiritual woman? And I would suggest to you that he is speaking about a spiritual woman. Throughout the Bible, we're going to get into it in Genesis chapter 6 very soon, there's a distinction made between the sons of God and the sons of men. The sons of God are the chosen line which comes from Adam through his sunset that goes down through Enoch and through Noah and through Abraham, Isaac, Israel, all the way down, goes into David and eventually to the Messiah, and it encompasses the entire nation of Israel. On the other hand, there is the line of Cain, and all of those outside of the messianic line who are the seed of the devil. The pattern is unmistakable and it carries all the way through the Bible, all right? In 1 John chapter 3, which is way, way, way at the end of the Bible, we read about those who belong to the devil. It says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother were righteous. And then two chapters later in the same book, John tells us that the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Here's what he says. Um, uh, I don't even have it here. Paul says the same thing though in 1 Corinthians 15 when he makes a contrast between the sons of Adam and those who have called on Jesus Christ. He's, both of them are making this parallel that if you are in Adam, you belong to the devil. If you have called on the name of Jesus Christ, you belong to him. So you have a choice in life. This is what the Bible proclaims to us. Therefore, the woman is the godly line whom the devil is at enmity, who is they're fighting with. And this is fully confirmed at the end of the book of Revelation in some wonderful verses. Actually, it's more in the middle of the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Here's what it says. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a on her head a garland of 12 stars, meaning the 12 sons of Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and 10 horns and seven diadems on his heads. He, his tail drew a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the devil stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. If you remember the second psalm I read a while ago, it was quoting that particular part of the second psalm. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We know this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there for 1,260 days. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time times and half a time or three and a half years from the presence of the serpent so the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood but the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth and the dragon was enraged with the woman meaning Israel and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ the woman who is depicted in these astonishing verses then is specifically the nation of Israel who gave birth to the male child. And her offspring, as it clearly states, are those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So here's a dilemma for us. If you're a Christian and you wonder why life can get so hard, why it's so difficult on you, the answer is right here. The devil is out to destroy you and to rob you of your joy. The devil does not need to spend his time attacking the rest of the world. 
the devil already owns the rest of the world. So he can spend all of his time and all of his demons attacking to fight at you, to tear against you, and to make your life miserable. The rest of the world makes their own life miserable because they belong to the author of misery. Do you, un- you wonder why again and again and again, I say it in every Bible class, I say it before sermons, I say it to people through emails. What is the one thing that I ask people to do more than anything else? Read your Bible. And why do I do that? Because it is the only way to know God's will, to stay in fellowship with him and to prevail over the devil's attacks. Without knowing your Bible, you are exposed completely and entirely to the enmity which is prophesied in the verse that we're evaluating right now between the woman and between her seed and the devil and his seed. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, asks you to do exactly the same thing, to prepare yourself for the battle that is going on around you. Here's what he says. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness, in their heavenly places. After saying this, Paul goes seven more verses explaining how to win in this battle. And so once again, I would ask you to read your Bible, to learn your Bible, and to know what the devil does not want you to know. Please. Our third and final thought today is the Proto-Evangelium. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Like I said at the start of talk today. The proto-evangelium means the first gospel. Proto. Everybody knows proto is first and evangelium. Think of evangelical, a guy standing on the street corner saying, repent and, you know, call on Jesus. It's to evangelize. It's to give out the gospel. I lived in Malaysia. Do you remember the car that was in Malaysia they made there? The Proton Saga, the first of the big continuing adventure of cars, and it was really a piece of junk, but what it was is they had these Japanese cars that, uh, uh, or this Japanese block, and it wasn't really effective, and so the Japanese sold the model of it to the Japanese and uh, or to the Malaysians. They built their, their first car down there, the Proton Saga. It wasn't a bad car, but anyway, when I read the Proto-Evangelium, I always think of the Proton Saga, this cheesy little car in Malaysia. This particular verse that I just read, though, that says, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, is translated, believe it or not, differently in different Bibles. The Latin Vulgate and the Dewey Reims Bible, both of which are Roman Catholics, say, she shall crush your head. And the King James Version says, it shall bruise your head. And others say, he shall bruise your head or he shall crush your head. The neutral nature of this particular personal pronoun in Hebrew could render any one of these correct. And so we need to spend a minute and talk this through. A Minto says this, the second sentence begins with a personal pronoun. The word may refer either to the woman or may refer to the offspring or the seed of the woman. Thus, the beginning of the second part of Genesis 3.15 is primarily translated in two ways. Uh, He uses a word here that most of you probably haven't heard, but he says, in view of the epicene pronoun, which means to form Uh, 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 or indicate both male and female sexes in a pronoun. That's what that means. As described above, both are correct. He's saying that it can be either he or she, or it can be both, all right? In arguing for the word she, which I'm going to do, and I don't mean to bore you with this, but this is very important, we can notice that in Genesis 3.20, Adam calls her the woman. He's about to name his wife. He says woman, and then he names her Eve. And Eve means or in Hebrew, it's Chava, which means the mother of all the living. No matter what, though, whether it's she or he in this particular verse, the Proto-Evangelium is prophetic in nature because there is the promise of a future redemption and that someone is going to crush the head of the serpent. The judgment on the serpent contains a promise of ultimate victory through the woman by her offspring. All right? Jesus is the offspring. And so either he or she could be acceptable, the woman or Jesus. I'm going to keep going here. Hang on. I will still argue, though, even though both are possible and both are acceptable, that he is the correct translation because the general rule of a language is that personal pronouns 
usually refer to the nearest antecedent. That means the nearest noun in the sentence, okay? In this case, it is the word seed. And the, secondly, the rest of the Bible bears out that Jesus Christ is the one who accomplished this work for us. Paul confirms it in Galatians chapter 3. He says, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say and to seeds as of many, but as of one seed, which is Christ. In other words, the translation he was using was a Greek translation, and it doesn't give an option. All right, Because the Bible does allow in the Hebrew both possibilities, and because both of them are semi-confirmed elsewhere in scripture, we do have to accept both of them as acceptable translation. She shall crush the serpent's head or he shall crush the serpent's head. However, only one can be included in any given translation. All right? Therefore, he is the acceptable translation. He is the seed. He came through the woman and he did the work of destroying the devil on our behalf. All right? He is far better for the choice in this. The verse then not only points to Jesus as the one who would defeat the devil, but it also hints at his incarnation. It is the first hint in the Bible of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Throughout the Bible, it is always, always the men who are highlighted and their seed. With a few exceptions where women are brought in, we have Esther, we have Ruth, we have these exceptions where women are introduced into the narratives. The focus is always on men and it is on their seed. Here's an example from Genesis 22. This is God speaking to Abraham. Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This one verse though, Genesis 3.15, never speaks of the seed of a man. The most wonderful event to occur in human history 4,000 years before Jesus Christ is prophesied in Genesis 3.15. And then in Isaiah 7.14, we read this parallel thought. Therefore, the Lord himself, you know I'm going to read this. This is the Christmas verse here. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The seed of the woman is defined and it is redefined right here in this one verse. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The child here has no earthly father, but his father is God himself. Thus his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew uses this verse in his gospel and assures us that Jesus Christ is the one that fulfilled this prophecy. Elsewhere in Jeremiah, we read another very, very difficult verse. It's from the book of Jeremiah. How long will you get about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. This verse here has been used both for the concept of the virgin birth and it's been argued against the virgin birth. If we are to take it literally and in its uh, literal sense, there's no other explanation that is possible. Israel was lost in waywardness, as it says, how long will you get about you backsliding daughter? They weren't following the Lord. They weren't following his commandments. But Jeremiah said that the Lord would create a new thing. If you remember the first se sentence of the Bible in Hebrew, you know it? Can you say it in Hebrew, Sergio? Bereshit, bara Elohim et hasimayim ve'et ha'aretz. The word bara, created, he uses. And the term here, the Lord will create a new thing, is exactly the same word, bara, that was used in Genesis 1 for the creative effort. He would again do a marvelous work by bringing about the life of a man without using a man. The Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary. The child who would come would be the son of God. The coming one would be the seed of the woman. When we arrive at the gospel accounts, the writers like Matthew, as we already noted, said this is Jesus. But Jesus himself uses a term two times when he is speaking in the book of John, which confirm that he is the seed of the woman. Let's read them both. The first one came when he was, before he performed his first miracle, and the second one came when he hung on the cross. The first one says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let me ask you, Rhoda, would you call in a Semitic language your mother woman? Is that normal to call your mother woman? 
No. How about you, Sergio? Would you call your mother woman? No. There you go. He is making a point here. It is not the normal Semitic way of speaking to your mother. When he's hanging on the cross, he does it again. When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, which is the Apostle John, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. In both cases, Jesus referred to his mother as woman, even though this isn't the way that you would normally speak to your mother, even in those Semitic languages. And because of this, it is certainly Jesus identifying himself as the seed of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3.15. And it is to me absolutely wonderful that from the Lord's own mouth, we have absolute certainty that he is the one to bring us out of the grasp of the devil and to restore us to our creator, his almighty father. On the cross, the serpent surely bruised the heel of the man when the nails were driven into them. No doubt about it. The lowly serpent attacked at the heel of the man, but this man was like none other. After a short sleep, which was death, he rose victorious over the grave and he crushed the serpent's head, meaning his authority. Jesus Christ regained what had been lost for many thousands of years. And today, you and I can stand victorious over the devil if we will only, by faith, put our hope and trust in what he has done. Albert Barnes, I have to give you this quote. This is what he says about the Proto-Evangelium. It is singular to find that this simple phrase, coming in naturally and incidentally in a sentence uttered 4,000 years and penned 1,500 years before the Christian era, describes exactly and literally him who was made of the woman without intervention of a man that he might destroy the works of the devil. This clause in the sentence of the tempter is the first dawn of hope for the human family after the fall. We cannot tell whether to admire more, the simplicity of its terms, the breadth and comprehensiveness of its meaning, or the minuteness of its application to the far distant event which it mainly contemplates. The most astonishing concept ever penned is that which tells us of the work of Jesus Christ as revealed to us in the pages of the Bible, which is God's love letter to all of us. It's a letter of restoration, it's a letter of grace, and it is a letter of mercy to us. From the earliest verses of Genesis all the way through to the book of Revelation, we see the wondrous works of an infinitely wise creator, and he is telling us about the plan of the ages In John chapter 19, right after saying what he did to his mother on the cross, we see the highest point of that plan when Jesus died on that same cross. It says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Remember what it said in the 22nd Psalm today? We were reading that. You'll see the parallels right here in this verse. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished. It's paid in full. The victory that was promised in the Proto-Evangelium was consummated in the death of a man in a backwater part of the Roman Empire in the year 32 AD on a Friday afternoon. The glories which came then and the glories which are promised to come for eternity all the way into the future are there for us to receive. And if we do, we will forever sing the song of the Lamb of God who was slain on that cross. In the garden, the serpent received his curse. On your belly, you shall go licking up the dust. The words were direct and they were terse, but the sentence was completely fair and just. Cursed are you more than the cattle and more than every beast of the field. Your existence will be as the heat of battle. But in the end, it is you who will yield. Of the dust you shall eat for all the days of your life. Never shall you taste the sweet, but only the fruits of death and strife. I shall put enmity between you and the woman, an ongoing battle through lengths of ages. Your seed, the unregenerate human, who against me reviles and rages. But there shall come one, a promised seed, who will crush your head for what you have done. Your numbers, your days are numbered, so take you heed. In my mind, the battle is already won. Jesus is coming to make all things new. The word is faithful and the word is true. In the cross of victory, you will assume a victory, yes, but not for you. After his cross and after his tomb, he will arise and make all things new. 
Man's redemption will have been wrought by the seed of the woman, my own son. With his blood, he will have bought the right to man's soul, the victory won. For eternity, my sons redeemed will sing. They will walk in the glorious light of life. From the cross of Jesus, he will bring out of the sea of troubles, a radiant wife. All hail the splendid name of Jesus. Our King sits at the right hand of God on high. Great and wondrous things he has done for us and we will exalt him as eternal years pass by. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you did. You promised it all the way back in the first chapters of Genesis and your plan is revealed through the Bible and it brings us to the highest point of that plan when you sent your son to the cross of Jesus to pay the debt that each and every one of us owes. We all think bad thoughts, we all reject you and we all wanna do it our own way and we cry out to you when things are bad but we don't really call on you with our heart and our soul. But then you say, if you just do, if you'll by faith accept my son, then I will have total and complete fellowship with you. And it is a wonderful gift. And I thank you so much for that gift. And I pray that anybody here that has never actually called on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will do that today. And that they will be freed from the debt that they owe, an infinite debt that they can never work for, they can only receive atonement by faith. Lord God, thank you for that. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the honor and all the glory that you're, you are due because of the work of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, before we uh, play a song here, next week we're going to talk about Genesis 3, 16 through 24, and I hope that you will take time to read those verses. It's a bunch of verses. What's that? Uh, eight verses, and take you quite a while to get through them. I'm kidding, of course, but uh, I am telling you this today because I would like you to get ready for a delightfully delicious sermon entitled Introducing Donuts, the End of the Garden of God. And you'll understand why next week.
also took the cup after the supper and he blessed it. He said, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the earth.